have your Bibles, let's go together to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, as we continue our study there through Luke together. Luke 22, and this morning we're going to pick back up where we left off, right there in verse 24. And if you do need a Bible, again, there's a few here available. Just slip your hand up and Kevin can pass one over to you. We're going to look from verse 24 down through verse 30. One more over here, Kevin, if we have it. If not, give them your iPhone. You have the Bible app. Just get it back. (laughs) And if you're turned there, would you stand together with me out of respect for the Word of God as we read our text? Luke 22, beginning in verse 24. It says, Now there was also a dispute among them. That's the disciples. A dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who execute or exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet... I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And Father, we do humbly ask right now for just the help of your Holy Spirit As we open up the Word of God, Lord, we want to just continue to be in an attitude of worship, even as we sang, Lord, to give praise and glory to You. Lord, we believe as we open the Word and and come believing that You as the living God want to say something to us, that our heart being willing to listen and open to receive is, Lord, just as much an act of worship before You. So we ask that Your Holy Spirit would give us an ear to hear, And that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but each one be able to experience that demonstration of your spirit and your power speaking personally and directly to each and every one of our hearts. Lord, give us a desire to listen and alertness. And we pray for your Holy Spirit's ministry to be our teacher this morning. And we ask these things, believing that's what you want to and will do. In Jesus' wonderful name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's pretty obvious from this passage in just the cursory reading that Jesus is talking about and trying to define uh, greatness. And as the disciples are disputing over which of them should be the greatest, Jesus, as a master teacher and leader, always seeks, it seems, to find a way to turn everything into a teaching opportunity. And, And we find him doing that once again here. And Jesus, we see, defines greatness And we will take notice, if you haven't already seen, that it is much different than a worldly view. You know, our world has its ideas of what it means to be a great person and how they label a great man or a great woman. And yet God's perspective many times is radically and completely different 
than the worldly view and the mindset of things. And we'll see Jesus here defining greatness in a much different way than we would expect as the world culture seeks to indicate to us. Now remember at this point in our study in the Gospel in Luke here, Jesus has just shared the Passover meal together with his disciples. He's literally within a few hours of the initiation of his suffering, of his arrest, where he ultimately would be crucified and die for the sins of the world. And at the Passover meal, remember, he had just expressed about as powerfully as possible his incredible love for his disciples. And in the midst of all these things, and right on the eve, in the hour of his most incredible suffering, really one of the most important moments on the earth in human history, Here we find the disciples doing something really almost rather humorous in some senses. It just seems so out of place. It says, verse 24, if you draw your attention there, now there was also, at the same time, a dispute among the disciples as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Well, I mean, this is just really almost humorous to consider. Sad, really, more than anything. At the most critical hour in Jesus' life and his earthly ministry, the disciples are caught up in doing what? Being completely self-serving. Completely self-serving. They are so consumed with self, being driven by the typical selfish human spirit that resides in me, it resides down inside of you, and you can tell that they are very motivated towards things like self-exaltation, self-promotion, doing what they can to jockey for position. They're concerned, notice, about things like recognition, They're concerned about titles and leadership positions and being in charge of others. It literally tells us, and the Holy Spirit gives it to us, that that's the right word there, verse 24, circled a dispute, an argument. This is a full-on heated dispute and debate over, it says, they're disputing over who should be the greatest among them. Who should be considered the greatest? And notice they're not just pridefully, that's bad enough, they're not just pridefully discussing who should be the greatest. It tells us here that they are actually disputing over it. They were literally having, please understand, a passionate debate. A passionate debate over their own personal superiority over one another amidst this Passover meal and this special moment with Jesus. In fact, if you even look at the original language there behind the English that we have, the Greek, the word that's used there to describe the dispute is literally a term that means a love of strife. It's, it's, it's the word phileo, it's a compound word. It has the phileo or philios term at the beginning, which is the term love in the Greek. It literally is a term to describe a love of strife, an eagerness to debate, indicating to us the language that these disciples actually were enjoying quarreling over their own personal superiority. They were actually finding some sense of enjoyment debating in relation to their personal superiority over one another. And can I remind you, this is not the first time these guys are doing this. It tells us back in Luke chapter 9 verse 46 that there a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. So years earlier in Jesus' ministry, 
They're having arguments and disputes over who would be the greatest, you know, one day. Who, who do you think's going to be the greatest? Who do you think ultimately will be the greatest? Now, here they are, hours before Jesus' death and crucifixion, and now they're arguing not about who would be, hey, who do you think should be? We've had a few years to prove this now. Who do you think should be the greatest? And they're actually bantering and discussing and even, it says, debating, disputing, over who should be the greatest. I'm telling you, what a great example. I'm so thankful God's word is so clear and so direct to show us here the realities. This is not the first time how the human heart is continually inclined to things like selfish ambition and pride and so forth. The question comes to my mind, what really could have triggered this particular debate? It's not the first time they had this discussion. Probably more than likely this particular debate was triggered by the seating arrangements at this Passover meal. Uh, if you know anything about the culture at this time, typically when they have banquets or feasts, the host would typically seat people in particular locations and the seating location to the host himself was a direct indication of a person's title or, or social status or rank or maybe even like their relational importance to the host. And you could literally look, they would sit typically in a horseshoe type pattern and the person to the right was the number one priority and then to the left and then so forth as they went around the table it typically was a cultural thing to indicate rank. And many times hosts would purposely seat people in particular spots to indicate who they felt had the highest rank, who has the, the most social status. It connotated impressions to people of inferiority and superiority among those who are present in meals. And it's very likely as they're seated at this dinner here, and again, whether Jesus assigned them their seats or considering these guys, they might, they might assign themselves certain seats and, and kind of when they came in the room, try to, like you and I, they want to play humble, but yet they're honestly so prideful. So, well, I'll take number three because then it won't look as bad when he moves me up to one. I mean, but I don't want to take one because then people will think I'm proud or something. And we don't know, we're not told. But it's very likely as they're sitting there looking at the status indicated by the position of their seating that this could have been what triggered a discussion that probably then developed into this debate and dispute over who should be really considered the greatest. And you can, you can hear these disciples. Well, let's not forget, gentlemen, I am the one who does such and such. And, uh, and, and, and Peter, I'm not the one who he said, get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, that was pretty dumb, Peter. I mean, I'd never done anything. And you can just hear them. You sort of, you know, self-promotion, talking about what they do in comparison to what others do and pointing out the shortcomings in each other. And again, what a great reminder to us because the truth of the matter is we're no different. We're much like these disciples in the same way because our sinful human heart is continually inclined to things like selfish ambition and arrogance and pride and we may dress it up well but the reality is just take an honest look around selfish ambition and pride and arrogance and self-promotion it's revealed everywhere in our culture you, know, you see it in your business places the selfish ambition among people and jockeying for position and promoting themselves it's all around the business world you know, you see it in school systems, you see it in families, you, you see it in organizations. And sadly, let's be honest, many times we even see it with believers. 
You even see it going on in churches sometimes where people, even among the body of Christ, just like out in the world, are seeking to acquire what's best for them. And people can be very self-serving, always looking for making sure they get what they want and, and making sure somehow that that's accomplished and selling and promoting themselves or seeking recognition. We're always looking for admiration somehow or in some way. And we have this canny ability and we may even, again, dress it up in the body of Christ a little better than people do out in the world who may not care as much about their Christian image but maneuvering for position and posturing ourselves in a way where maybe we'll get picked or selected for something. We do the same thing. And the problem is our heart. The problem is the sinful tendency in our heart. So Jesus, seeing this going on with his disciples, and it's almost crazy to consider, these are the 12 guys who are going to take on the mission of spreading the gospel to the world. <laughs> that makes me feel real encouraged about serving the Lord. You know, I look at this, you know, th these are Jesus' top 12 this is who he's got. He's going to turn the whole show over to. And here are these disciples doing this. Well, he sees the error. And what does Jesus do when he sees error? He doesn't ignore it. He confronts it. And that's because he loves us. So Jesus sees the disciples in this attitude of arrogancy and selfish ambition and, and trying to maneuver position. And Jesus, he confronts their error and he instructs them what's the right way to do things. And that's what he begins to do. Again, James chapter 3, verse 14 to 16 tells us, If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, it's sensual, and it's demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So the Bible tells us to be self-seeking, to be envious, selfish ambition, these things, God says, look, that never comes from God's wisdom. That comes from earthly wisdom that's presented to us in our world culture. And it does nothing but cause confusion and problems in businesses and organizations and in churches alike. It tells us so well, it was in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it tells us this by way of instruction, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And again, the Bible says that is the mind that was in Christ Jesus, who's our example that we ought to emulate as well. What great instruction counter to the error of what you see with the disciples arguing and disputing over the greatest. The Bible tells us the truth is nothing we do should be done out of selfish ambition. We shouldn't be doing anything out of conceit and wanting to exalt ourselves and get recognition and, and get admiration. But instead, we should always, he says, in loneliness of mind, always make other people more important than us esteeming others more important than ourselves, looking not to be self-serving, but to be sacrificial. And hey, how can I meet the needs of other people? The Bible says that's truly an attitude of greatness. And the disciples' focus and perspective is so out of tune at the most important hour of Jesus' ministry. And sad to say, how many times in our lives can we be so self-serving that we are so off track in our perspective at some of the most important hours, at some of the most critical moments. You know, I have the privilege, and I consider it a privilege on occasion, to be with people at times on some of their most important hours, the most critical moments. 
you know, a wedding celebration or the exact opposite, a funeral or the death or the dying of a loved one. And at times, I'm shocked and flabbergasted how completely out of tune somebody's perspective and attitude can be because they're so self-serving at the most important hours. And this was the disciples. God help us to have hearts that are more in line, especially at the important hours of life, to be those who are seeking to put others before ourselves, unlike the disciples. Well, Jesus, being aware of the self-serving attitude, what does he do as a good teacher? He sees their contaminated perspective. He sees their self-serving attitude. He wants to correct it. Verse 25, he now begins to instruct them. He says, look, the kings of the Gentiles... They exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. He says, but not so among you. So he warns them what? He says, look, don't be influenced. Don't be influenced by the ways of the world and its patterns, nor the follow the leadership models that are out there in culture. He says, stay away from those kind of things. Those patterns exist. They're there. They're obvious. We see how the world does things. We see the patterns of those around us. But the Bible says, be careful. Jesus says, don't let that be your example that you emulate or the example that you follow after. He's warning them to be cautious of that. He draws their attention to how earthly kings, he says Gentile kings, that would be those who don't know God. And he says, the model's evident. Look at it. He says, you know how the, the, the leadership style of people who don't know God is. And the Jews were familiar with the way the Greeks and the Romans, how they would lead and their, their emperors and their kings would rule over people. And how many of them would use and, quite honestly, abuse their authority in such a way where they would kind of dominate over people with a heavy hand. And they would use their authority to kind of control people in unfair ways. And even the fact that you'd use their influential role to kind of promote themselves all the more. They would use their status to try and gain greater status, to get a greater measure of glorification and self-exaltation. Notice Jesus says here, those in authority, they expect to be called, he says, benefactors. Benefactors. Well, you look up that word benefactor, it means someone who confers or provides benefit to other people by their presence or their power. And really, that is what a leader should be. A leader should be a benefactor. A leader should be somebody who by their presence and by their authority and power and position, they contribute benefit to people. That they actually make people benefit and make their life better as the result of their position. These leaders, unfortunately, among the kings of the Gentiles, using and abusing their power, they wanted to be esteemed with the title of being called benefactors. The idea is that they wanted people to call them benefactors so that the image was given that, hey, as the result of me being in charge, your life is really benefited. Because I'm the guy on the throne, boy, you, you're such a benefit to you. I'm such a blessing to you. And the reality was, the Jews knew, as they watched the Greek and the Roman kings in that day, that the truth of the matter was they used their authority and position not to benefit other people, but they used their authority and position in self-serving ways just to benefit themselves. And they use their leadership role to do nothing more than to be self-serving and to benefit themselves and to help further their own selfish agendas. And Jesus points to that 
model, and he says, no, 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 not, not so among you. You know, isn't it interesting as we look at Jesus here giving this example how sadly nothing has changed over the years and among all kinds of different civilizations? Whether it's in government, again, whatever happened to the term public servant? Somehow that got lost somewhere. <laughs> we look at the government role, public servant, indicating I am here in this position to be a servant to you, to be a benefactor to help you. But instead, tragically, much of that has been turned around in our government positions in our world, where instead people use authority and position to just further their own agendas. In the business world, sadly, many times we, you know, people have authority and position and they don't use it to bless and benefit the lives of others. Instead, they just use that position, tragically sometimes, to just benefit themselves or to rule over people in a way where they get what they can out of them and that's it. And they're really only trying to benefit themselves. And sadly and unfortunately, on occasion, we see it in organizations and we even see it in the church. And Jesus says, such should not be the case. He says, that's the way the kings and the Gentiles do things. He says, verse 26, to the disciples, his followers, he says, but not so among you. Jesus is saying, listen, as my followers, you are called to live distinctively different. Are you a leader in some capacity? Great, Jesus says. But as my followers, be different. There should be a tremendous contrast, Jesus is saying, between the child of God, the follower of Jesus, and the way that the world does things. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we should not be conformed to the pattern of this world. That is, as a Christian, if I claim to be a follower of Jesus, I should be living opposite of the way the world lives. I've been saved out of the world. I've been called out of the world. You and I were living conforming to that pattern, but now we're serving a different king and a different kingdom. And therefore, it should be true that when a Christian is compared to the world's norm, there should be an extreme, distinct difference. There should be a vast difference between Christian leaders whether in ministry, whether in government, whether in business, whether in schools, whether in families, as husbands, there should be a vast difference in our leadership style and the way that we lead in comparison to what the world's norm is. As a Christian period, people, when they look at our lives, they should see a distinguishable difference. When people look at your life as a Christian, they should look at your life and, and your conduct in such a way where they say, wow, you know what? That guy's really different. He's different. That gal, she's really different. She's not like everybody else I know. That person doesn't seem self-serving. That person doesn't seem like that they're just looking to fulfill their own agendas and use people and manipulate people and looking out for them. That person, really, they seem different. They really seem to have an attitude and a disposition and their conduct and their convictions and behavior, it's really different than what I see out there in the world. Listen, the thing that should make us attractive, gang, as Christians is our distinct difference from the world. Not trying to be like the world. The church has this wrong idea, oh, we got to be so relatable to the world so we can draw the world in. Listen, we, it's our distinct difference that makes people say, you know what? Maybe there's something real to this God thing, this Jesus thing, because that person's really different. 
and they're so different from the rest of the world, maybe it's true that there's a living God that really is at work in their life that makes them different. And that's what makes them attractive. So Jesus here challenges his disciples. As he sees them kind of caught up in the worldly attitudes of those around them, he says, listen, that's the way the kings of the Gentiles do things. They lord it over people. They, they're looking out for their own benefit. He says, verse 26, but not so among you. On the contrary, he says, he who's greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs or leads or rules over people, the one who governs, Jesus says, let him be as someone who serves. So what's he doing? He's saying, look, from God's perspective, to be great, it's very different. Heaven's perspective on greatness is to live countercultural to the world, to aspire to things instead like humility, to aspire to things like submission and servanthood. And I like this, since they desired to be great, Jesus doesn't notice, he doesn't rebuke them for their desire to be great. I find that interesting. He doesn't say, I can't believe you want to be great. What does he do? He says, do you want to be great? Let me just tell you how to be great then. He doesn't, he doesn't challenge their desire to be great. He instructs them what it means to be great from God's perspective. You want to be great? I'll tell you how to be great. Jesus says, if you truly want to be great, he says, greatness from God's perspective comes through things like humble submission and an attitude of servanthood towards others. He says, he who wants to be or is greatest among you, verse 26, he says, let him be as the younger. The younger in the culture, clearly, with the least amount of honor and dignity and social status. And in that culture, in that society, younger people did what? They submitted themselves to those who were older. They recognized the proper authority of those who were older than them, and they humbly accepted their role. They let others be in charge. They listened to commands. They obeyed what was asked of them to fulfill the agenda of those who were over them and who had responsibility as a position of authority over their lives. The point Jesus is making is the younger person basically lived in submission to most others. So Jesus is saying, do you want to be great? Then make a decision to submit yourself to other people. Do you want to be somebody who's considered great? He says, willingly put yourself under others and have a submissive attitude. Have an attitude that's submissive towards other people. Aspire towards humility. If you want to be great or think you're great, Jesus says, try manifesting it through that kind of an attitude, through that kind of a disposition where you humbly submit yourself to fulfill the desires and needs of other people around you instead. Now, what a great challenge for us as we leave from here and go out into the world this week, whether it be in your home or whether it be in your job place or, again, your school or wherever, to, 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 to take that as a goal. Hey, let me see. How can I try and have a more submissive attitude? How can I submit myself to other people around me and seek to fulfill what would help them, what would bless them, what would benefit them? You'll shock people because most people in our culture aren't like that. People in our world, they're always looking to try and be in control of people and tell everybody else what to do. But to default on occasion, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5, submit yourselves to one another out of the fear of God. That one of the attitudes of a heart that is right and pleasing to God is just a submissive spirit that, hey, there are times when maybe you're supposed to be in charge. But what's wrong on occasion with just stepping back and letting somebody else be in charge? 
and saying, hey, how about you call the shots and we'll do what you want to do or take the lead and I'll just follow. What's wrong with doing that? Jesus was the greatest example as he came to this earth and had a submissive attitude. And Jesus here says, let he who governs as well, verse 26, let he who governs be as someone who serves. In other words, like the slave or the servant in the house. What is Jesus saying? He's instructing those in leadership positions to what we often call servant leadership. He says, do you govern? Do you have a role where maybe you have a leadership position and you have authority? Jesus says, that's good, but let the one who has that position be like someone who serves. A servant. He's calling the leader to servant leadership, whereby that leader in their position of authority, yes, they can give wise direction. Yes, they can use their role to know how to guide people and they know how to make wise choices and direct things the way that a leader must be able to. But at the same time, that leader also leads via example through personal actions and decisions. And doing things through their behavior and the demonstration of their actions that show people how to work and not just tell people to go work. And they're a servant leader in the sense that they don't just send people out to do work, they actually share in the work. And they don't consider certain tasks too low or menial for them, and they would never ask as a leader someone to do something that they themselves have never done. Or they would never ask someone to do something they themselves are not willing to do if necessary, if that's what it took to get the job done. This is what servant leadership is. This is what Jesus says a leader that's in line with the heart of God would be like, where they're willing to roll up their sleeves and do every task just like everybody else. And they know how to lead and govern and direct, but they also are someone who doesn't just give orders and sit back and watch everybody else do the work and recline and take it easy while everybody else is working twice as hard as those around them. And Jesus says, look, if you're going to govern and lead, here's what he's saying, if you're going to govern and lead, listen, always still be willing to still put your shoulder into the work. Always put your shoulder into the work. Whether you're a leader in your family, listen, I, I understand that as a leader in our home, there are certain things we may give tasks to our kids and this and that, chores, errands, but what if once in a while we take the lowly task? What if as the leader in our home, we, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll do the, the, the more humble, low, menial task. What's wrong with doing that? In a place of business, what's wrong with doing that? What an incredible example to do that when we have opportunities to lead by example by being a servant leader. Jesus is showing the disciples and he's telling you and I that greatness is not just in the titles that we hold. Greatness really is in how we take care of people. Greatness is demonstrated by being willing to serve people and to take care of people and treat people properly. In 1 Peter chapter 5, you might want to write that down in your notes there, Peter gives examples, uh, gives an exhortation, excuse me, to the Christian leader, to the elder, how to not only be an example, but to serve the flock of God among them. And he exhorts the fellow leaders in the church body to be those who serve as overseers by giving an example of the demonstration of a servant attitude in their own life. And what a great illustration Jesus sets now in verse 27 as he uses watch his own life. He says, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? That was understood. Yet, here's a statement, I am among you as one who serves. 
Jesus says, listen, again, I'm not just telling you these things theoretically. Have I not demonstrated them experientially? See, it's one thing to proclaim things. Again, when we're a leader, we're trying to teach people. It's one thing to stand up and with oratory to say, hey, this principle, and, and, and to make theoretical statements. But if you make theoretical statements, but you experientially don't live it out yourself, last time I checked, that's called a hypocrite. And that really seemed to bug Jesus too. Jesus says, look, I'm among you as one who serves. He asked these two rhetorical questions in verse 27. He says, tell me, culturally, who's typically the greatest person? Is it the person who's sitting at the table that's being waited on? Or is it the person who's serving those who are sitting at the banquet feasts? Well, common sense, everybody regarded the people who sat at the table as having higher rank and status. They were the ones getting their feet washed and they were the ones being served the meal. And the slaves and the servants who were considered less significant and didn't have rank and status, they were the ones meeting. So the ones who sat at the table were always considered the greatest. And Jesus takes that and he says, hmm, interesting. Greatness is recognized by those who sit at the table. But he poses the thought here in verse 27, considering himself, he says, but can I ask the question, does true greatness really consist in having people wait on you? That's a good thought to consider. Does true greatness really consist in how many people wait on you? Does that demonstrate greatness? If so, Jesus challenges that because he says, I am among you as one who serves. And consider that. Who was Jesus? He was the host of that Passover meal. He was their teacher. He was their Lord to the disciples and to everyone in society. Jesus was considered pretty great. Let me go a step further. Jesus was the son of God. Jesus was sitting on the throne in heaven and all angels and everyone bowed down in worship to him as king and kings and lord of lords. He was the greatest that ever existed and he came to this earth and did what? He came to this earth and humbled himself and took the posture of a servant. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus being God made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant. He said himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. I love that. Jesus says, when I came to this earth, though he'd merited every ounce of worth and glory and to have everybody serve him, he's the son of God, the savior. But he said, I didn't come to be served. I came with the express purpose of serving others of serving other people. Man, what a great exhortation for us. Jesus' life demonstrated, in fact, many a times when you look at Jesus, a lot of times he made people uncomfortable because people knowing who he was and yet then he would humble himself and serve in lowly ways that caused people to almost kind of feel a little ashamed and awkward. They kind of felt a little uneasy as he would serve. In fact, I think in verse 27, Jesus is specifically saying what he is in relation to what he has just done among the disciples of that Passover meal. Again, writing in your notes, John chapter 13. Many of you are familiar with that story. What happens in John chapter 13? John chapter 13, at this very meal where they were sitting at the table and Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. What did Jesus just do among them probably right before he said these things? It tells us that he got up from the Passover meal and he started washing all the, <laughs> washing all the disciples' feet doing the most lowly, menial thing as the disciples are standing around disputing over who's the greatest. Why? Because they're thinking, Why? certainly uh, somebody should be washing feet. 
And they're all looking around at something that needs to be done thinking, but somebody else should be doing it, not me. Somebody should be washing feet. Jesus says nothing. He gets up and he does the very thing that needs to be done that everybody else is standing around thinking they're too great to do. And he just humbly gets up and he starts doing He starts washing everybody's feet. And then they're all shocked. And they're all ashamed. Peter, Lord, what are you doing? You you, you shouldn't be washing feet. You're the Lord. You shouldn't be washing feet. And Jesus says, do you know what I've done among you? If I, your Lord and teacher, do these things, shouldn't you do the same? And he says, blessed are you if you do them. He says, you really want to be blessed? Try being a servant next time. Find out how you get blessed being a servant. The joy somehow that comes into our lives. And just a great passage to read in relation to what Jesus is actually saying here. I am among you as one who serves. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. Now, I like this. Jesus, despite the disciples' weakness, despite their failures and mistakes that they often made, he here in verse 28 lovingly expresses how he valued and appreciated what? Their loyalty how he appreciated their faithfulness to stand by him and remain with him through difficulties. Jesus' ministry, though it was in complete line with the will of the Father in heaven, it was not absent from problems. There was resistance. There were obstacles. There were challenges and difficulties like with everything else. And as Jesus went through some of those difficult, challenging times, when we read the gospel accounts, we see what happened. Many of those who started with Jesus, when things got difficult, they decided not to stick around anymore. And when things got a little bit challenging, at times many who started with Jesus, they would depart and they would turn away. And on occasions where maybe Jesus was asking for something to stick with him that required a little personal sacrifice or, or maybe as Jesus would be moving in a direction where they realize, hey, th- well, this isn't according to our preference, we read occasions where it says people, they would depart. They would leave and, and they wouldn't continue with Jesus anymore. And they would turn and they would walk away from him. But yet the disciples... Despite their shortcomings, what did Jesus appreciate? He appreciated how they continually stood by him and faithfully supported him and how they exercised relational loyalty towards him. And apparently this blessed Jesus, that they continued with him, that they were faithful and loyal. And it shows me that that mattered a lot to Jesus because he commends them here for it. That Jesus says, look, despite your shortcomings, and we just saw a great one, Evans in the prior verses, He says, I deeply appreciate that you've continued with me in my trials. Jesus is saying, I appreciate that even through thick and thin and hard times, you 12, one thing I can say, he says, you were loyal. You stood with me and you remained faithful. And can I just say this by way of application? It is a wonderful thing to have a few folks in your life that stick with you for the whole journey. It is the most glorious thing to have a few people in our lives that hang around and stick with you over the full distance of the journeys in your life. Now, I'll tell you something. The contribution of people's skills and talents, that's wonderful, but there is no greater asset than loyalty and faithfulness in relationship to partnering and standing by and serving with other people. Listen, I, I've been in pastoral ministry, in senior pastoral ministry for 15 years. And I can tell you that is true. 
That is true. Talent, skills, yeah, they're wonderful, but there is nothing more valuable than loyalty, than faithfulness. I think if you ask most leaders in the business world and everywhere else what matters the most, and they would tell you, look, that's what matters the most. In fact, this past week, I, I purposely asked a good friend of mine who's been a successful CEO of a large company that very question because I wanted to hear it from the business world as well as from the ministry perspective. And I asked this specific question. I want to read it to you. I asked, as a business leader, would you rather have one loyal person or a few talented people? Here was the answer. You need that one loyal person that has your back and will help you navigate. In my world, I know I can't go it alone. One loyal person will breed other loyal persons. Talented people usually come with an attitude and a high opinion of themselves. Talent doesn't breed talent, but loyalty can breed loyalty. Boy, that's good. And that's in the business world. How much more true should that be in the body of Christ? Where we understand the love of God and things like humility and submission and faithfulness. Listen, listen. Loyalty and devotion is one of the greatest gifts of service you can give to people around you. In your marriage, in the organizations you may be a part of, in your friendships, in your business. Be loyal. Be faithful. You may not be the most skilled person, but be loyal and be faithful. Boy, that makes up for a whole lot. Because talented people, they come and go all the time. But loyalty, faithfulness, those are those rare gems. Let us seek to emulate the disciples here because why? That blessed Jesus. This really blessed Jesus' heart. So in relation to my commitment to Jesus, the disciples, I, I, can, I can resonate with them. I look at the disciples and I see them bumbling and stumbling and doing dumb things like you and I. And I, oh man, that's so freeing. But Jesus says, look, I, I know you disciples aren't perfect, but he says, what I do value, you stood with me. You continued with me even through thick and thin and through my trials. And you know what? As a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may not have a perfect track record. You're going to stumble. You're going to fail. You're going to sin. You're going to make mistakes. But you know what really honors the heart of Jesus? Just stick with him. Just keep loving Jesus. Just keep walking with Jesus and continue with Jesus. Don't turn away from Jesus. Things are going to happen, hard things, difficult things. We're going to have ups and downs. And, but life's full of trials. But continue with Jesus. Continue with Jesus. And can I encourage you too, the people that God brings you into relationship with in your life and the people God joins you with in marriage, in relationships, when God joins you with people, be loyal, be faithful. Continue with people over the long haul. Jesus, speaking about servanthood, then concludes in verse 29 saying, And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus, speaking about servanthood, tells his disciples now, assuring them, saying, Listen, even if not in this life, even if you're never recognized here, you're never noticed here, you're never rewarded here, you're never thanked here, there's something beyond this that's still worthy of being a humble, servant-hearted person in your life. And Jesus says you will ultimately be rewarded eternally. 
You know, the disciples, I think, just like us, their own sinfulness and the worldly influences and the culture around them, were kind of getting them a little sidetracked, where they found themselves kind of striving for recognition, wanting glory, wanting reward, and Jesus redirects their attention. He redirects their attention to what really matters. He redirects their attention to the ultimate eternal reward. He says to them there in verse 29, even as I'm going to inherit a kingdom, he says, I'm going to bestow the kingdom experience upon you as well. He says, verse 30, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So those who follow Jesus, those who remained loyal to Jesus, his servants and disciples, they would receive a special reward. In verse 30 here, he mentions particularly some unique and special privileges of these disciples, opportunities and status that they would receive as a result of their faithfulness. Jesus says, you will get to sit with me at my table in my kingdom. Now to sit with Jesus would be an elevated seat of honor. Again, this was all in relation to what they were striving for in their humanity so hard, right? They're striving so hard to get things for themselves. And Jesus says, look, if you'll just be humble, faithful servants, everything you're striving for, I'll bless you with it. But let me give it to you. Stop trying to get it for yourself. Let me give it to you as a reward, Jesus says. One day you'll get this high status. You'll sit with me at my table in the kingdom, and he says, and position, oh, you want position so bad. Jesus says, listen, there's a unique reward coming for you. For the disciples, the 12 that were there, Jesus says, you will sit with me at my table, but more than that, you will sit on thrones, he says, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 disciples will get the unique privilege to rule together with Jesus, to share in the governance of his kingdom in some way, judging and overseeing the affairs of the kingdom. And I think you find Jesus here encouraging his followers to realize, listen, it is completely, thoroughly worth every ounce of effort and attitude in our heart to be humble, to be submissive, to be servant-hearted, despite what the world is doing, because he says, listen, it will not go unrecognized from heaven's perspective. And it will be rewarded. The things you do in your house that not another person sees, but God sees your heart that you're trying to be a humble servant as a teenager. You're trying to be a humble servant as a husband or as a wife or a mom. You're trying to just be a humble, servant-hearted person. Jesus sees it, every ounce of it, and he will reward that. The things you do in your business, if you stay an extra 15 minutes or you come in 15 minutes early or you do something and nobody else sees it and the boss never recognizes it. Listen, there's a Jewish carpenter who's got some great business benefits that are eternal, that sees everything that you're doing. And he will reward it many times in this life, but definitely in the life to come. Jesus tells us in Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Jesus says there's coming a time where in the kingdom some will hear him say these words, listen, because this may be what you're waiting for, to one day hear Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things, 
and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Listen, if we were to be honest in this room this morning, it is truly challenging at times to stay faithful to Jesus in our world. It's challenging and disheartening at times trying to be different than the rest of the world around you. And at times we find ourselves all growing weary in well-doing. We, we all can grow weary in well-doing. And the Bible encourages us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I cannot promise that. Nor does the Bible promise that your labor in everything else you do in this world might not be in vain. Listen, there are people that pour their lives into pursuits, pour their lives into business endeavors, give everything, work, handle at both ends, and kill themselves in labors, and it all falls apart business crashes or never takes off or they're never rewarded they never get the promotion they never get and it, and it's all in vain there's no guarantee but there's one guarantee the one guarantee is the bible says that your labor in the lord will never be in vain anything you do for the lord that will never be in vain it will be ultimately rewarded. And boy, we need to hold on to that because this morning, it's a good occasion to ask, what's your perspective towards measuring greatness? What does it really mean to be a great person? What's it mean to be great? Is it what the world's saying? Or is it what God's saying? I'm going to try and pick what God's saying. Sounds like a much better idea to me. I think it's going to have a lot more lasting benefits. And if you're discouraged and weary, look, consider what Jesus has said and believe Jesus' evaluation and ask the Lord as you take these things, as we walk into this week ahead of us, ask the Lord, Lord, help me to be a servant. Teach me how. I'll be first to tell you, that's not my natural inclination. You know what my natural inclination is? I am a selfish pig. Selfish pig. I love to not have to do anything if I don't have to. My natural inclination is to be utterly selfish. But I hope that the Spirit of God's inspiration in my heart, changing me, conforming me into the image of Jesus, makes me more and more have a submissive attitude. Be a humble servant. Be someone who wants to consider others better than myself. And you know what? Jesus can change our hearts. He can make you like that. Ask Him to give you a servant-hearted attitude and to reflect that by the way that you serve others around you in the week ahead. Shall we stand? Let's pray and we'll worship the Lord in a final song. And Father, we ask that you would help us to honor you in ways this week by not just being hearers but doers of the word. Lord, I know for myself and for those here in this room, Lord, we we don't want to just hear a fine-sounding lecture about some great things and just ignore it and walk out and live the way that we often do. Lord, we believe your word is something to be obeyed and observed. That's why you gave it. So Lord, help us by the grace of God and by your spirit. Would you make us men and women who are servants, 
to those around us and to not need the reward and the glory here, but to trust that your reward and your commendation of being a good and faithful servant is more than worth what we're really longing for. Help us, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name.